Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And good evening. Look at that. I was Johnny on the spot. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to PerfWeb 25, part one. Part two will be tomorrow. I want to welcome everybody here this evening. Uh, I'm going to just jump right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover and just get right to our obligatory comments that I have to make. So, uh, David, let's move forward with it. Uh, first thing we need to do is we're on all of the social medias, and I think those icons are going to pop up here momentarily. Oh, there they go. Yeah, there we go. So you see all of the icons right here on my on my left side. They're actually on my right, but they're on my left. Um, and uh, we need you to please follow us, subscribe, and click the bell icon on our PerfWeb YouTube page. Look, this is really important. We're almost to a thousand subscribers. When we get to a thousand subscribers, we'll get some additional privileges. We'll make that experience for you uh, a lot better, okay? So also please, and hit the bell icon to get the notifications. Then I really need you to like us on the Facebook and to, um, what do you do on Facebook? It's like and follow or like and? Like on Facebook. Like on Facebook and follow us on the Twitter, right? So like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, okay? That's really important. We really need you to do, do those things too. And then after our lectures, when we open the phone lines, if you'd like to be live on the air with your question or your comment or participate in the discussion, whatever the case may be, please go ahead and use this number. You can write it down, but wait until we say the phone lines are open. You'll see this icon pop up and then you'll know we have an open from there. Okay, so I, unless there's anything else, I'm done with the opening remarks. We're just gonna go forward with the show at this point in time. So we have a real interesting program tonight, uh, focusing around, again, the kidney, but specifically about injuries to the kidney. So we have to have some foundation to work from that, but we're gonna talk about the drivers of urine production. We're gonna talk about what is acute kidney injury. We're gonna talk about, um, about- uh, uh, Fluid balance. Uh, fl and yeah, fluid balance, but on your second talk, your second talk was- My second talk tonight is gonna be largely on the- That's right, on ultrafiltration, that's right. On does, does ultrafiltration on cardiopulmonary bypass reduce uh, urine output? And I think that's going to be a very provocative, very interesting uh, topic. This whole session is going to be very provocative. But let me introduce you to our fac one of our faculty speakers. Uh, you, you met John Ingram last time, I believe. He is a graduate of the Texas Heart Institute School of Perfusion in 1987. He has been the chief perfusionist at a number of places, including Cedars in Miami and in Mount Vernon. He has eight published papers. He has several patents. He showed me one of them the other day. It was quite fascinating. Uh, and, and, and Keith, he needs to talk to you about this patent he has. It's really, really neat. He has consulted with multiple perfusion companies through the development of cardiopulmonary uh, disposables, oxygenators, tubing packs, filters, and the like. Uh, he's currently practicing as a locum at uh, major ECMO centers, but he has for the past year been with uh, Advent Health in Orlando, uh, which doing both adult and pediatric perfusion. And that, uh, I was shocked. I went and visited uh, John the other day, just a few days ago. 
and uh, the hospital is humongous. I can't, I can't even begin to tell you how big this place is and beautiful on top mm -hmm. of it, big and beautiful. Uh, but they have a dedicated eight bed ECMO unit that was filled to capacity and you had two patients on ECMO on in another unit mm -hmm. on another floor. And you guys are actually building a bigger unit there. We're actually building a 32-bed VAD and ECMO unit. 32-bed VAD and ECMO unit. That, I mean, that's, that's some impressive stuff there. And then also coming to us via the Skype is Keith Smolik. Uh, Keith first started, and for those of many people, I'm just, can we put Keith up so we can all see him? There he is. Hey, Keith. Hey, Joe. Hey. Hi, John. Hey, Keith. Good to see you. Good to see you again. Keith started Great. working in perfusion in 1989 at Johns Hopkins, a pretty prestigious place, and has worked in the Mid-Atlantic and New England areas, and he's still very involved with the in the field uh, in many ways. I think, are you still pumping cases now? No, it's been a while since I've pumped. Um, I primarily am working doing a lot of little things as well as running my company. Right. He is currently the liaison to the blood management medical community of SABM and its network for AMSECT, as well as in the AABP liaison for perfusion, again, from AMSECT. He is a director of the International Board of Blood Management and certified PBMS patient blood management specialist. He, has, uh, he was on the steering committee for the uh, new advances in blood management organization, uh, organizing perfusion meetings in Jackson Hole in Kansas City. I spoke at one of those, as a matter of fact, Keith. It was a great meeting. Um, you did an exquisite job on that, by the way. He is a past chair of SAVM Perfusion Blood Education Committee and was on the guideline writing committee of the International Board of Evidence-Based Best Practices. He's authored peer-reviewed articles, many of which I've read. He has developed patent and patented uh, and brought to market an innovative blood salvaging device and method for saving autologous whole blood in surgery with sales in the U.S., Canada, and globally abroad. That being the, can I say the name of the uh, product, uh, uh, Keith? Uh, if you like. Yeah, well, of course I like. The Hemobag. Um, and so for those of you not familiar, the Hemobag takes your pump blood and it concentrates it with a special process, making it very safe and also very effective because there's some, some factors that uh, you have to be uh, sensitive to or respect when you're concentrating blood in your pump circuit that you're going to give back IV. Uh, but it's the Hemobag and then you give it the whole blood back to the patient. And this seems to have very, very, very positive positive outcomes associated with it. So I highly recommend anybody that tends to come off with uh, a significant amount of volume in the reservoir to consider talking with Keith uh, at some point. We'll put his information up and find out about that product because it is very innovative. It's been around for a while, but it's still considered innovative and very, very, very efficacious. Uh, Keith has uh, received the AABP's highest award, the Dale E. Smith Award. I remember seeing you with that, Keith, for innovation uh, pioneer in blood conservation from the National Blood Foundation. And currently he serves full time as the president and CEO of Global Blood Resources. That's company that produces the hemobag and is the chairman of the board. At the end of the day, I know both of these gentlemen uh, very well. I've known Keith perhaps longer than John, uh, but I can tell you both of these people have a a, 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 an over, a truly a humbling for me amount of knowledge in the kidney, 
in fluid management, in understanding fluid compartments within the body and how they all work and interact and how cardiopulmonary bypass affects those. And uh, I think that their contribution to the to the uh, to the uh, webinar tonight is going to be uh, is going to be very significant. And uh, with that said, I'm going to turn the uh, microphone over to John, and John is going to give his first talk, which is, what are the drivers of urine production? John Ingram. Well, Joe, thank you very much. It's good to see you good again. Good to see you, too. I was back uh, here the first time you invited me in March, which was for PerfWeb 23, and we touched on some of the similar things, but I think you're wise to expand upon all the things we touched on in that Perf PerfWeb 23. So. Um, Joe invited me to back, and I very much appreciate that and honored to be here. And um, Joe, one of the things you asked me to see if I could speak on was, what are the drivers of urine production? So I hope to shed some light on, on that, because it, as I looked into this topic more and more, it actually became more and more fascinating, but it also became more and more complex. And as I took the title that you had gave me, I thought to myself, after studying this uh, topic for uh, several weeks on end and, and the months that you uh, contacted me, I realized that it's really a delicate, delicate balance that, that uh, involves how much urine we actually produce. <clears throat> so real quick, we just do a quick review of renal anatomy. And here's the uh, cutaway of the, of the kidney. And the first thing I want to point out is something called the renal pelvis. This is really the structure of the kidney that gives it, gives it its support. It's the general central zone where the renal artery comes in and the renal vein and the ureter. There's also a renal nerve that, that is uh, not shown there that all comes into the central por portion of the kidney and uh, really gives the kidney its structure. And then you want to focus on the uh, vasculature of the kidney, which comes in, um, of course, like any vasculature, it breaks into smaller and smaller arteries, eventually feeding the most important area of the kidney probably for, for our talk tonight is the medulla, which is going to contain 1 to 1.5 million nephrons per kidney. And um, the nephrons are the functional unit of the kidney, as, as all of you probably know. As we look at the nephron real quick, we're just going to review it for a second. And you want to, you want to look at the afferent arterial. This is something we're going to be referring to a little bit throughout the night. This is really the lead-in arterial into the glomerulus that, that begins the process of bringing blood into the nephron. And so as the, as the arterial, afferent arterial brings blood in, it goes through a vast network of capillaries uh, inside the glomerulus and it dumps a huge amount of plasma and plasma-like water into the convoluted tubules. The blood then exits the glomerulus through the efferent arterial. Another thing you can make a note of for tonight's discussion, we're gonna talk a little bit about that. And the blood then leaves there and then comes down and interplays with a vast network, vast network of capillaries and convoluted tubules, which in this green box that I've outlined there is the uh, interplay that involves secretion or reabsorption and all the things that end up producing the uh, output, which is urine, that eventually we, we, uh, we discharge. So let's look at the kidneys a little bit more in depth. Um, of course, as I said, they're the primary functional organ of the renal system, and they're absolutely essential in our homeostatic function. They serve as the natural filter of the blood to remove waste. But they also regulate blood pressure, and primarily 
in terms of volume, they regulate it by maintaining or discharging salt. And as you know, salt, sodium chloride goes, there goes water. So it's going to control salt and water balance, as well as a, a number of other things we're going to discuss. They regulate the electrolytes, a, no, a large number of the electric lights, and maintain acid-base balance. It's important to uh, remember that a, a big function of the kidneys is also to maintain our acid-base balance. So they do regulate uh, a large number of the uh, electrolytes, sodium, chloride, potassium, magnesium, calcium, the nitrates, bicarbonate ion, and the excretion of the uh, hydrogen ion I put separate because we're going to focus on that, something people tend to forget about when it comes to the kidney. So they balance glucose and amino acids as well. They, they retrieve as much glucose as possible, rendering the urine virtually glucose-free, except when you have a patient who's hyperglycemic. That is usually an unusual state, and you find glucose in the urine, usually it's an abnormal condition. And then it, um, the glutamine uptake helps maintain our acid-base homeostasis. Uh, it's a waste product, amino acids, glycine and citrulline are removed, um, but meta metabolically beneficial amino acids, serine and arginine, are released into the circulation. So this helps as well maintain our acid base with these proteins that absorb uh, our, our hydrogen ion. They produce, uh, the kidneys also produce hormones like calcitrol, which is an active state of vitamin D, erythropoietin, and the enzyme renin, which we're going to talk about. And all of these affect the renal and hematological and physiological processes in our system. So when you look at balancing urine production, I basically want to focus this on three primary regulators, what I call regulators of urine production. You know, it's a, it's a delicate balance, as I said, and it's a tug of war in opposite directions between producing urine and limiting how much urine we produce, constantly going on in the body, and many, many factors interplaying on one side or the other. And then um, these regulators either stimulate or inhibit urine production. So I'm start off with the three primary regulators. And this is a take-home slide, so you want to make a note that one of the three primary regulators, aldosterone, very important, ADH, antidiuretic, antidiuretic hormone, and the autonomic nervous system. So let's focus on these three to get started. Let's go back one. The back one? It's not going back. That's Here, okay. let me see. Okay, so mm -hmm. when you look at the three primary regulators, aldosterone, antidiuretic hormone, I start off with this graph, and this graphic is going to grow as the lecture goes on. You're going to begin to see by the time we conclude all the delicate balance of why we produce, how much urine we produce. Okay? So these are the three regulators. So let's look first at aldosterone. Aldosterone is produced by the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system also known, known as RAS, R-A-A-S. So we first start off with something called angiotensinogen. This is naturally secreted by the liver, and angiotensinogen is uh, constantly uh, circulating within our uh, blood system, okay? Then when the, when the kidneys sense a drop in blood pressure, they release renin, okay? Renin then converts angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1. This is going to be a little bit of a domino effect till we get to the effect that we need. So renin is very important because it really starts the process and catalyzes angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1. 
Angiotensin 1 is now circulating in the bloodstream, and as it passes through the lungs, this is where the largest uh, concentration of ACE, angiotensin conversion enzyme, exists. About 80% of it exists in our lungs. When the angiotensin 1 comes in contact with ACE, it converts it into angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 is what you really want to focus on, on this slide, because once we get to this point of angiotensin 2, angiotensin 2 now has direct powerful effects. It directly affects the adrenal glands. And by the way, as a side note, a high potassium, which is going to play a hot, hot, an important role here in, renal, uh, in, in urine production, high potassium also directly affects the adrenal glands as well. And the angiotensin II stimulates the adrenal glands to release aldosterone. Aldosterone is an antidiuretic. Make a note of that if, you, if, uh, if you're listening at home, because that's going to become important. Anti aldosterone is an antidiuretic. Antidiuretic is going to decrease urine output, which is going to hopefully increase our blood volume. But, and this is going to result in an increased blood pressure. So remember when I first said, when the kidney senses a drop in blood pressure, it releases the renin. The end result of that is to stimulate aldosterone, which is an antidiuretic, decrease urine output, increase blood volume, and then the effect is the end result, increased blood pressure. There's more to it than that, and we're going to get to that in a minute. So aldosterone is a hormone of the neuroendocrine system. It's the end product of the renin-aldosterone system, as I just demonstrated. But its main purpose is to regulate potassium levels. That's actually the main purpose of aldosterone. When I showed on that last slide that a high potassium will directly stimulate the adrenal gland to stimulate aldosterone, because that is really the main purpose of aldosterone. And in doing so, it's also going to be um, aiding us in maintaining adequate blood pressure by controlling uh, the volume. So it's going to regulate our fluid volume of the blood, being an antidiuretic. It's also going to help regulate acid-base balance. The primary effects, it causes the kidneys to increase potassium excretion. That's really the main cause. In doing so, it's an antidiuretic, and it increases water reabsorption. Okay? It causes the kidneys to increase uh, hydrogen excretion. So aldosterone's main purpose is to reduce excess potassium, and it's a consequence of this purpose that it's actually an antidiuretic, okay? Now let's talk about the second regulator, which is antidiuretic hormone, ADH. ADH is a hormone of the neuroendocrine system. It's also known as vasopressin. It's synthesized in the hypothalamus, hypothalamus and released from the pituitary gland. Now, its main purpose is to regulate the osmolarity of the plasma, okay? It's also going to maintain adequate blood pressure. And its primary effects as an antidiuretic is going to increase water reabsorption as it's secreted. But it's also an arterial vasoconstrictor, raising the systemic vascular resistance. This is a pretty fast responder. And it's going to actually uh, have its effect with just within a few minutes, okay? The third regulator of urine, primary regulator, is our autonomic, autonomic nervous system. Now, you can have the sympathetic response or you can have the parasympathetic response. When you have the sympathetic response, as you, most of you know, it's our flight or, response, flight or fight response, right? So these are sympathetic nerve fibers. They innervate the renal arteries directly. 
Its main purpose is to increase heart rate and increase blood pressure. It's also going to increase skeletal muscle blood flow. It's going to dilate bronchial airways. It's all part of the fight or flight response. It's also going to reduce internal organ blood flow and motility. The direct effects on the renal, though, is an antidiuretic. It stimulates aldosterone release, which I just mentioned to you is also an antidiuretic. It's a renal arter artery arterial vasoconstrictor. It's going to decrease renal blood flow, and it's going to end up decreasing urine output. All this fits with the fight or flight response. On the opposite side, if it's a parasympathetic response, it's a rest and digest response. Easy way to remember it. Parasympathetic nerve fibers also innervate the renal arteries directly, and its main purpose basically is the opposite of what I just showed you. It's going to decrease heart rate and blood pressure, decrease skeletal muscle blood flow, decrease our respiratory rate, increase our internal blood flow and motility, and the renal effects, it's going to act as though it's a diuretic, reducing aldosterone release. It's going to dilate the renal arterial, end up, end up increasing renal blood flow and increasing urine output. So now we have those three uh, regulators of urine, of urine production, but those have to be influenced by something. There has to be something that is telling each one of those to secrete more aldosterone or less, or to be parasympathetic or sympathetic, or to secrete more antidiuretic hormone or less. And that's where it really becomes important. So these influencers, what I call influencers, are physiological factors that are going to influence the regulators of urine production and cause them to either increase or decrease their impact over the kidney's ability to produce urine. So now our graph is growing. So we see our three powerful regulators, but what are the things that are going to influence each one of these to increase its influence over the kidney or decrease? Well, if you've ever wondered, you know, let's think about it. We all drink, if you drink a, a large bottle of water, most of us know within five or 10 minutes, you're running to the restroom. Why is that? What has the body picked up on that's told the kidneys, we need to secrete a lot more of water? And why does it slow down and stop? What about blood pressure and blood volume? If our blood volume goes up or our blood pressure goes up, how does that send a signal to the, to the kidneys to increase or decrease urine output? If we have a high uh, hydrogen concentration, if we become acidemic, why does that tell the urine, uh, why does that tell the kidneys to increase or decrease urine output? Same thing with potassium. These two things are, are among the most powerful influences of urine production, so I isolated those on the talk tonight. And then some things that we bring in ourselves, things that we introduce to our system. Alcohol, caffeine, and we can take diuretics. So these are outside influences that we, can, uh, we, we, we decide to take. And how and why, when you drink caffeine, does it cause you to have an increase in your urine output? And alcohol the same way, and diuretics. So these were the main most powerful influencers that I isolated for this talk tonight. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what a lot of these do. So the first one is osmolarity. Right? This is when you drink water or become overhydrated over or underhydrated. Well, this changes your osmolarity, right? So the hypothalamus is the thirst center of the body. That would be a take-home note. There's osmoreceptors located in the hypothalamus. When the osmolarity changes, 
Water diffuses in and out of these osmoreceptors. In other words, they'll expand or contract, right? If, if your water volume drops, your hydration becomes low, osmolarity increases due to the increase in the concentration of solutes. If the osmolarity increases, pituitary is stimulated to secrete antidiuretic hormone. Now, this is the biological sensation of thirst. All of us have felt thirsty. Why do we feel thirsty? Where is that sensation coming from? It's coming from the hypothalamus who has said the osmoreceptors are becoming shrunken, dehydrated, and it stimulates your urge to drink more fluid. The release of antidiuretic hormone secretion starts the antidiuretic events that reduce plasma osmolarity back to normal. So the increase in water volume will have the reverse effect. If water volume increases, osmolarity decreases due to the decrease in the concentration of solutes. If the osmolarity decreases, pituitary is not stimulated to, to secrete antidiuretic hormone. And the lack of antidiuretic hormone secretion promotes a diuretic event that increases plasma osmolarity back to normal. So let's take a look at this just as a simple diagram. You have the hypothalamus, and this is the thirst center of our bodies, and it's directly attached to the pituitary, the pituitary gland. These have osmoreceptors, okay, that I mentioned before are going to expand or contract according to our level of hydration. Okay, now according to that, they may or may not stimulate antidiuretic hormone secretion into the blood, which will either increase or decrease our water retention. So, under dehydration, you see there that the osmoreceptors are shrunk, right? This will cause them, in, in a dehydration mode, to shrink. The stimulation is sent down to the pituitary gland to secrete antidiuretic hormone, which will be secreted, which will increase water retention and decrease urine output, right? So now let's look at another influence of the regulators, blood volume. If we look at our atrial stretch receptors, okay, these are located primarily in the left and right atria, but there's also about 20% of them are also located in the ventricles. We tend to focus on the atrium and think they're only there, but they're not. They're actually in the ventricles as well, but about 80% are in the, in the atria, so we're going to focus on that. So, and they're affected by a high or low blood volume. Blood volume is related to pressure, but let's just focus on uh, the primary fact that they're basically volume dependent because they will become stretched in a high volume state and they'll become less stretched or relaxed in a low volume state. And this is important to perfusion because, you know, we, we cannulate the right atrium, Joe, and I know you do, um, mm -hmm. this is a hot topic for you that you like to, uh, uh, think about what happens to these atrial stretch receptors on bypass. We're going to be covering that a little bit tonight and a lot more tomorrow when we talk about cardiopulmonary mm -hmm. bypass. But when we look at the uh, atrial stretch receptors, what about in a high volume state? In a high volume state, we're going to, the st atrial stretch receptors believe that we are over volume overloaded. So it signals the hypothalamus to suppress antidiuretic hormone, which is going to increase urine output. It stimulates the parasympathetic system also, okay? This is going to slow your heart rate, slow contractility, and this is going to help to decrease the blood pressure, which is going to help decrease some of the volume overload that you're having. But you're going to release atrial natriuretic peptides, your ANP and BNP. This is what's really important about these stretch receptors. And these peptides directly uh, send a signal to decrease 
renin output, which is going to suppress aldosterone production. This is going to increase urine output. It also directly, the vessel receptors are directly innervated with these ANP and BNP peptides. And they cause arterial vasodilatation, which makes sense, which is going to decrease blood pressure as well. Okay, so now let's look at low volume states. And for, you know, the sake of redundancy, it's basically the direct opposite of what I just said. But if you're, if you're hypovolemic, it's going to stimulate the hypothalamus to, to secrete antidiuretic hormone, decreasing your out, urine output. It's going to stimulate the sympathetic system, which is going to increase heart rate and contractility, increasing pressure. It's going to suspend the atrial nitriatic peptide secretion, which means it's going to increase renin, increase aldosterone, and decrease urine output. And the vessel receptors, which are directly affected, are going to uh, cause them to have arterial vasoconstriction, increasing blood pressure. Okay? Basically, shock. Mm -hmm. So while volume and pressure are related, you could have opposites going on. And that's why I mentioned earlier, you could have, it's a tug of war and a delicate balance here. Because when it comes to pressure specifically, all of us have, have, have been taught in, in school that we have baroreceptors barrow located in the, in the arch vessels, right? These are directly pressure sensitive, whereas the atrial uh, sensors were really stretched by volume. Now these, are, like I said, these are located in the sinuses of the aortic arch and arch vessels. They're affected by higher or low blood pressure. They also become stretched in high pressure straits, in, in, high, in high pressure situations, they become stretched or they contract or become relaxed in low pressure situations. So these baroreceptors in a high pressure state send a signal to the hypothalamus to inhib, inhibit aldosterone, which is gonna increase urine output, stimulates parasympathetic system, which is gonna decrease heart rate and contractility, which is gonna directly decrease pressure Okay, it also decreases angiotensin II production, which is then going to have the effect of vasodilatation, decreasing blood pressure. It's going to send a signal directly to the kidneys to inhibit antidiuretic hormone, which is going to increase urine output. Okay, so directly affecting um, the exact uh, result that we want. In a high-pressure state, it's going to do several things to decrease that high pressure. Well, what if it's a low-pressure state? Signals the hypothalamus to excrete aldosterone. This is going to decrease urine output. Stimulates the sympathetic system, which is going to increase heart rate and contractility, increasing blood pressure. It's going to increase angiotensin II, which is a vasoconstriction as well, increasing blood pressure. It's going to signal the kidneys to excrete antidiuretic hormone, which is going to decrease urine output. Okay? So now, let's look at acid-base balance, and it's specifically hydrogen levels. The kidneys and the body does not like to be acidotic. It, it does not, uh, cells do not function well in an acidotic environment. So in addition to the kidneys uh, role in this, it, it would be inappropriate to not uh, discuss what goes on before the kidneys get involved. Because we actually have buffer systems. We have the proteins. We have the hemoglobin, which is also a buffer the phosphates in our plasma, and the bicarbonate carbonic acid. We also have the respiratory system that's going to play a role. And finally, as a last gap measure, the renal system gets involved. Okay, and we're going to look at why this is real quick. But the buffer systems are proteins, primarily intracellular I'm referring to, and these are positively charged, charged groups that will bind with hydrogen ions and thus function as buffers. The hemoglobin's intracellular as well, 
inside the red blood cells. Now think about this for a minute. Your red blood cells are constantly taking in carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide immediately inside the red blood cell shifts the bicarbonate uh, formula to the right, producing what? Producing hydrogenide. Immediately the red cell becomes acidotic. Hemoglobin on its own is able to bind these excess hydrogen ions immediately, keeping the red cell from becoming too acidotic. In our plasma, the proteins, by the way, at the top when I say intracellular, the proteins are also in the plasma, but the, the biggest influence is, is actually the phosphates. And these phosphates ions are able to immediately combine H2PO2 minus PO4 minus 2, easily combines with hydrogen ions to form H2PO4. Um, then the bicarbonate carbonic acid in the plasma, which is a big one, the bicarbonate ions immediately combine HCO3 minus with H plus, pushing the bicarbonate uh, formula to the right, producing CO2 and water. So then you get, so the reason I mention that is because, you know, the, the system, your, your, your homeostatic system does not like being acidotic. So we have four primary systems in place that in, in, within seconds are going to correct any acidosis that it can handle. And this can be easily overwhelmed, by the way. But this is why if you drink a 32-ounce big gulp of Diet Coke, very acidotic, and you have uh, you know, some, some jalapeno poppers as well, um, you don't become acidemic in your blood because you have these immediate systems that are going to be uh, addressing this acidosis. But if it becomes overwhelmed, your respiratory system is going to come into play, and that can start working within minutes and start uh, blowing off excess CO2, which I just showed, what's going to move the bicarbonate formula back over. And then finally, and in a slower process, the renal system gets involved. So quickly looking at the respiratory system as an organ regulator, it's going to remove carbon dioxide via expiration, which is going to move the bicarbonate reaction back over to the left. And as you blow off more carbon dioxide, okay, it moves the, uh, it takes in more uh, hydrogen iron, moving the uh, reaction to the left, decreasing your acidosis, so causing the hydrogen ions to combine with the bicarbonate ion. So this is how the respiratory system aids us in controlling. So now let's get to why uh, more of the purpose of this lecture. If both of those systems uh, are still overwhelmed and you become acidotic, your renal system says, okay, I have to get involved. If the blood becomes acidotic, the kidneys increase the secretion of the hydrogen ions in the urine. Now remember what I showed in the beginning, the, uh, the glomerulus and the uh, tubules interplay with the, with the vasculature with all your secretion and your reabsorption are regulating uh, the level of the hydrogen ions. So it, the kidneys and the nephrons can easily adjust that and begin to take on more hydrogen ions. They also uh, can increase or, or secrete more bicarbonate ions. As a matter of routine, the kidney's doing this. So when it begins to see an acidotic state in your blood, it can take on more hydrogen ions and reabsorb back into the blood more bicarbonate ions. So it's really a two-punch powerful system. If the bl blood becomes basic, of course, the kidneys will decrease the secretion of hydrogen ions in the urine, and it'll decrease the reabsorption of bicarbonate ions. So, when you become acidemic, uh, your, your kidneys are going to become very concerned about that and really begin to become a driver of our urine production. Another very powerful driver of urine most people forget about is a potassium level. Elevated potassium levels um, 
are monitored very closely by the adrenal gland. The body knows that elevated potassium levels, if they get too far out of hand, is directly going to directly start affecting how the heart functions. So it's very, very uh, sensitive to, to changes in potassium, especially on the high end. So serum potassium levels are the most potent stimulator of aldosterone secretion, mm. the most potent. The adrenal gland immediately stimulates aldosterone release in response to an elevated potassium. This is in regardless, regardless to whether you're hydrated, overhydrated. If you have a high potassium, the kidneys get involved to, to start reducing that. This is aldosterone's main purpose, is to reduce potassium. It's only a consequence of that function that it's actually an antidiuretic. Now let's look at things that we can take in ourselves. which uh, first let's look at diuretics. So diuretic drugs increase urine output by the kidney. We know this, but most diuretics, basically what most of them do is they inhibit the reabsorption of sodium by some means. And when you inhibit the reabsorption of sodium, water always follows sodium, okay? So you, you will excrete more water, basically uh, becoming the uh, purpose of the diuretic. What about when we drink alcohol? You ever heard that joke, I drank so much last night, why am I thirsty in the morning? Well, if you drink alcohol, the hypothalamus detects the blood levels of the ethanol. The ethanol, though, inhibits the pituitary's ability to secrete antidiuretic hormone. Without that ability to secrete the antidiuretic hormone, it causes the nephrons to retain water, okay? Consequently, the kidneys produce more urine. So obviously, the diuretic effect is you can drink all you want, but you're gonna diurese more than what you take, took in, and you're dehydrated in the morning. Caffeine, what does caffeine do? Caffeine consumption has a well-known diuretic effect, but what it does, it vasodilates the renal afferent arterial, actually which increases blood flow to the kidneys and increases the glomerular filtration rate. This re it also reduces the reabsorption of water and sodium. So that's gonna increase your, your urine output. So now, when we look at, the graphic has grown now because we have our regulators there, aldosterone, antidiuretic hormone, and the autonomic nervous system, but they're picking up their influences from the key drivers on the left. But wait. There's more. It doesn't end there, okay? There's more to the story. The kidneys have a self-regulation mechanisms of their own. The kidney maintains the electrolyte concentrations, osmolality, acid-base balance of the plasma within narrow limits that are compatible with effective cellular function. Fluid throw through the nephron must be kept within a narrow range for normal renal function in order not to compromise the ability of the nephron to maintain salt and water balance. So in other words, if the nephrons themselves would, were to allow themselves to be overly influenced by some of these uh, uh, regulators, they themselves would not be able to function normally. So that's why they try to maintain by, in addition to all these outside influences, the nephrons themselves must maintain a very narrow range of overproduction or underproduction. So in addition to all the influences and regulators of urine production, the afferent arterial and the nephrons themselves have independent self-regulatory mechanisms to limit the amount of influence, to limit the amount of influence that these forces can exert. And, and these are called, so 
here I, I insert this into the, into the graph, because at the last gap measure, all of these things are going on. We've taken in caffeine. We've got a high blood volume. We've overhydrated, whatever you want to throw into the mix. And it's sending these signals to the antidiuretics to secrete more or less, the autonomic nervous system. And right when it gets to the point of having its effect, the kidneys themselves say, hold on a second. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna play a role here, too, and limit how much influence you guys are going to have on over us. So the renal blood flow, the kidneys are very effective at regulating the rate of blood flow over a wide range of blood pressures and blood influences, by the way. Blood pressure will decrease while sleeping and increasing while exercising, yet the glomerular filtration rate changes very little. Due to two internal autoregulatory mechanisms that operate independent of outside influence, and these are called, one, the myogenic mechanism, and number two, something called the tubuloglomerular feedback mechanism. What is the myogenic mechanism? The afferent arterial of every individual nephron uses myogenic mechanism to self-regulate the blood flow entering the glomerulus. What does that mean? The myogenic mechanism is how arterials react to an increase or decrease of blood pressure to keep the blood flow within the blood vessel constant or as constant as possible. How does it do that? Well, so what it is, it's a counter-reaction initiated by the myocytes themselves in the walls of the afferent arterial in a response to outside stimulus. They're most active in the afferent arterial, arterial that supplies the glomerulus. So if blood pressure increases, right, the smooth muscle cells inside the arterial are stretched, right, and they respond by resisting and by contracting back to where they to where they prefer to be. This results in actually very little change in flow, right? You understand what I'm saying? If the blood pressure increases, that forces them to widen. They constrict back to keep the blood flow back to as normal as possible. When the blood pressure drops, the smooth cells relax to lower resistance, allowing, again, a more continued even flow of blood. What's the tubuloglomerular feedback system? Well, this is a feedback mechanism whereby there's something called maculodensis cells in the convoluted tubules that react to the osmolarity of the urine by either dilating or constricting the afferent arterial. So <clears throat> while, the arter while the afferent arterials themselves are, are, are sensitive to changes in blood pressure, down the, down the line, these maculodensis cells, they're looking at osmolarity. Osmolarity is important because that's telling you if you're overhydrated right, or dehydrated. So depending on the osmolarity, these maculodensal cells are going to send a signal directly back to the afferent arterial to either dilate or constrict. So looking at this in, in, uh, in detail, it's a counter-reaction initiated by the cells, the maculodensal cells, and the convoluted tubules in response to urine osmolarity. They're most active, I said, in the afferent arterial that supplies the glomerulus. So these maculodensal cells react to an increase or decrease in osmolarity of the urine by dilating or constricting the afferent arterial. A higher osmolarity activates the cells to release ATP and adenosine, and we can talk about that later, but the effect of that is to actually constrict the afferent arterial, which slows renal blood flow and glomerular filtration rate. And I'll just stop to say for a minute, a lot of people say, well, adenosine is a vasodilator. It is, but in the afferent arterial, it's a vasoconstrictor. It does vasodilate the efferent arterial, though. Mm -hmm. So 
Lower osmolarity filtrate activates these same cells to decrease the ATP and adenosine, which will then actually result in dilating the afferent arterial and increasing glomerular filtrate. So when you look at the whole complete picture, and now you've inserted the renal self-regulation aspect of it, you can see that all of these things are going on in a, in a, in a very delicate tug of war, which the end result is how much urine we actually uh, produce, okay? And this is really the conclusion slide. Um, you know, you could probably have dedicated uh, a year of your life studying or more uh, any aspect of, of the effects of this and how it really goes on down on the nephron level. You know, mm -hmm. there's so much going on here. So well, people do. Yeah, absolutely. People do. And, you know, I, there's a lot of takeaway messages here that I, that I see. Um, first of all, it, it is highly complex. Mm -hmm. You know, the, and I, I've said it how many times, you know, over the course of my career, the kidney is is one of the most underappreciated organs there are. But, you know, the people that spend so much time learning about this, um, you know, they, 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 they are so busy with chronic kidney disease mm -hmm. patients. You, uh, uh, the patients that we're seeing, you know, they, they don't see a nephrologist until the problem has become so bad that they now have a, an actual renal failure circumstance. And then they treat the symptom, but the process by which they got there is not really ever addressed. So how much of what we see is, is perhaps avoidable? Um, the other thing that I take away from this <clears throat> is that when we do heart surgery, whether it's even you know on pump more uh, perhaps confounding, but even off pump, because you're affecting the blood pressure so much, how much, but specifically on pump, how much does, how much do we really know or understand about the influences that has? Because it's a very unusual circumstance. Mm -hmm. You're emptying out the heart. Um, you're using continuous right. flow. You does that actually matter? You're, you know, we run mean pressures lower. You're hemodiluted. There's so many, all of these factors. Can we bring Keith in if and, he's there, and maybe he can join the discussion too? And just I for didn't our, think about it. And just for our audience, Joe, tomorrow we're talking about all of the things on bypass that affect urine output. Yeah, that's so the, thing, be the very, things that you were just talking about. Important. So if, if people are, are going to be watching tonight and then again tomorrow, this talk was done for normal physiology. Yes. And, I mean, you could have probably introduced a number of more things that I, you know, just didn't have time for because this is already very complex. But when you throw into the mix putting an atrial cannula in, completely confusing your atrial nephrotic peptides, because they've never experienced a negative pressure, but that's what we're doing in the atrium. Then you have a non-pulsatile flow, and the baroreceptors have never seen that either. And they're trying to increase blood pressure or decrease, and the atrial, and then you have, where's the sympathetic system come in? Then all of a sudden you have what some systems are sensing as an overhydration because we're diluted. The osmolarity gets changed. You probably have thrown every uh, And influence, we're giving cardioplegia with huge amounts of which potassium. Which is potassium. Right. Then, if you've done something to cause the patient to be acidotic, and then we're cooling then, them, then we're giving them diuretics. Maybe, maybe and you're giving we're cooling them, them. And we're cool so I think we are really, really 
understand as perfusionists, and then it's not a fault, but it's really not something we've ever spent a whole lot of time focused on. We're really on the outer fringes of understanding mm -hmm. what we're really doing to the kidney, really on the outside. Mm -hmm. Because, or, yeah. you know, we're do you know to I mean? them or how we're affecting all, them? All, all of, you know, yeah. we don't understand, I know I don't, understand really how they really, really, really work and what really they're sensitive to and what drives them. I hope I've spread, shed some light on it tonight. Then you take this abnormal physiology, perfusion, ECMO, bypass, circuitry arrest, and you throw that into the mix and every one of these systems and every one of these influencers and regulators are now going, you know, hold the phone. We've got to do more urine output. We've got to vasoconstrict. We've got to vasodilate. It's no wonder that on bypass, I don't know that we even know what, what, what normal urine output probably should be. You know if, what I mean? If any. Yeah. We, we don't know. We, and so we don't know. We, we That's think a we very know. good point. You know, and so I, I think by tomorrow, and this uh, PerfWeb uh, that you put together today and t tomorrow is so uh, consistent in its theme that I think people are going to be able to really uh, think about more. Wow, you know, maybe I should read and, and, and understand and try to understand more and more about what we're really doing with the kidney. And mm -hmm. believe me, I am far from an expert on this, and I feel like I barely scratched the surface on this. Well, I on think this. That's, and, that's, uh, that's, I mean, that's very humble of you, I think. But no, really. Keith, do you have any thoughts? Well, I really appreciate, uh, especially your last slide was, was great, your summary slide. And uh, I really appreciate you going through it very, very well. Um, I'm really looking forward to your next talk. But there's no doubt about it. it. It boils down to the microvascular perfusion. Um, the kidneys play an absolutely huge role. But uh, I'm looking really forward to your next talk, John. Yeah, thank you. And then John's next talk. But, uh, you know, so much, and of course, with everything that changes, you know, the, the, kid, the body itself, but I think since we're talking about the kidney, it's very adaptive, okay? So it sees an environment. You have a patient that's on a, a long-term VAD. Well, that's continuous flow. And long-term, those patients do just fine. They all don't go into renal failure. They do, you know, they, they, the, the uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney, he didn't go into renal failure, and he had a VAD in for a number of years. Mm. But it's adaptive. On bypass, the problem is there's no time to adapt. It's sudden. It's su mm -hmm. and, and it changes throughout the procedure. Right. You have this environment, that environment. You can have multiple environments on bypass. Well, look, I, I, that was an, an absolutely incredible uh, talk, and I truly, truly enjoyed it. Uh, I hope everybody out there did too. I'll go ahead and key mine up, and we'll get started. And Keith, let me see if I can. I, I'm not going to be able to compete with this, but I'm going to do the best that I can, if you don't mind. Okay, and uh, I'll take the clicker, and uh, let's see what we got here. Okay, so uh, what are the effects they, of ultrafiltration? That's, that's mm -hmm. mine. They're going to put yours up. Oh, that's not mine. Yeah. You got to put mine up. Yeah. Thank you. It's a good thing. <laughs> I would have really messed there that up. Bad. Well, they look similar, though, don't they? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the purpose of this talk, my goal here today, really is to explain as best I can what is... AKI, what is acute kidney injury? And what the definition is, etiology, and some of those causes. So some foundational information, AKI is very common in the critically ill population. 
it is essential for early detection. I mentioned that, I think, during our little brief uh, dialogue there, that it usually isn't really detected early, um, but in particular by healthcare providers that are not nephrologists or have specialized nephrology training. Because the earlier you can recognize the problem, the better off you are at potentially reducing the long-term ill effects of the uh, of the disease. Oh, went too far. There have been a multitude of studies. <clears throat> I've just listed a few here. The best kidney uh, out of JAMA, 4.5% of all critically ill patients develop AKI with a mortality exceeding 60%. Uh, in o With O'Neill and critical care, he said that 25 2 to 5%, I'm sorry, of cardiac surgery patients develop AKI with a 50% mortality and uh, significant long-term consequences. Now, uh, that seems pretty low because I've, yeah. I've seen much higher than that in terms, and STS, I think, has it between five and 7%, but if it's an isolated valve, I think it's between 10 and 15%, it's much higher. So now we're looking at another study out of the uh, Annals of Cardiac Anesthesia in 2016 that uh, cardiac surgery associated AKI has a 20% of those patients will develop it, and it's associated with an 8% 90-day mortality. Again, very significant uh, mortality problem. So in regards to the pathophysiology of the disease, Dr. Uh, uh, Ronaldo Bolomo, I think he's out of Australia, and uh, Claudio Ronco out of Italy, both of them are brilliant uh, nephrologists and intensive care medicine doctors. Um, and it's very interesting. Most intensive care medicine doctors you'll find are double boarded, mm -hmm. but usually in pulmonary care. There are some that are uh, nephrologists and intensivists, but they're, uh, they're rare, but Dr. Bolomo and Dr. Ronco are two of those rarities, I guess, if you will. They recognized in the article that they wrote that this is a significant problem, that is cardiac surgery associated AKI. It is very complex and multifactorial. It has at least six major uh, injury pathways, both exogenous and endogenous toxins, metabolic derangements, ischemia and reperfusion injury, neurohormonal activation, and inflammation and oxidative stress. They also uh, stated that it was very important to avoid nephrotoxic drugs while on pump, and that includes furosemide. So Lasix is a nephrotoxic mm -hmm. drug. The, 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 the kidney does not like it. Mm -hmm. But yet we use it liberally uh, as, uh, as if we're giving a, uh, an 81 milligram aspirin. I think it's a problem. But what don't you see? And what you don't see is nowhere in there do you see ultrafiltration as a potential cause for cardiac surgery associated uh, acute kidney injury. So definition, acute kidney injury was first described in 1918 by a Dr. William McNiter, and it had to do with a uh, patient who had a, uh, a diagnosis of mercury poisoning. But in two, it later became ARF, acute renal failure, and in 2004, ARF was really redefined to be AKI, 
and the rifle criteria became sort of popular as a mechanism by which we assess a patient's renal function and determine whether there is a KI. Rifle has three severity grades uh, and two outcome classes. And here's a uh, diagram of it. So you see on the left GFR criteria, you see on the right urine output criteria, and you have risk, injury, failure, loss, and end-stage kidney disease. So RIFLE stands for that, risk, injury, failure, loss, and end-stage uh, kidney failure, kidney disease. Um, so you can have an increased creatinine of 1.5 or a GFR decrease of 1.5%, uh, percent, that is, uh, and a 25% uh, decrease in your GFR. So if your creatinine is, uh, it's 1.5 times, excuse me. So you start off with a creatinine of one, and uh, after the surgery, you're at 1.5. Well, you're in the risk category. Or if your urine output is less than five mLs per hour per kilogram for six hours. Injury, absolute injury, would be essentially a doubling of your serum creatinine with a decrease of your of 50% of your GFR or a urine output of less than 0.5 mLs per kilogram per hour for 12 hours. Failure increased times three of your uh, serum creatinine GFR decreased 70 by 75% or an absolute serum, serum creatinine level of four milligrams per deciliter, or any acute rise of equal to or greater than 0.5 milligrams per deciliter, or you can see the urine output over there in particular and urea. So it's pretty obvious you've, you've got a serious problem there. The problem that you have with creatinine is that it's a very delayed response. Creatinine takes a while before it actually shows up. So when you see it at 1.5 times your baseline, by the time you see that and you think this patient is at risk, but it is going to get worse, it probably already is much worse, and I think that results in undertreatment quite frequently. And then you have the uh, two outcomes, which is persistent acute renal failure and loss, complete loss of kidney function for greater than four weeks, and then, of course, uh, ESRD or ESKD, end-stage renal disease. So greater than three months, you are on, you're on dialysis. So rifle on the left then became Aiken, and you have uh, all of these different classifications. So they're trying to find a way, something that may have been better than rifle. And Aiken stands for the Acute Kidney Injury Network, and uh, they came up with instead of this uh, uh, risk and uh, outcome classification, they came up with stages, stage one, two, and three, and you can read what they are there. It's very important to note in the Aiken criteria that once you receive any form of renal replacement therapy, whether that be intermittent hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy, CVVH or whatever you want to call it, you automatically are considered to be stage three. And then came Cadigo or Cadigo, however you like to say it, and uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but that is the uh, uh, 
kidney disease improving global outcomes. And their criteria really is very similar to the Aiken with very, very little difference. There's a few minor things, but uh, I don't really think enough to uh, spend a whole lot of time on it. I think it's important, however, to be familiar with these three things and to have some understanding of them so that when you're looking at a patient's labs, you can, or, or their INOs, or you're not put in the ICU on an ECMO patient, you can actually take a look at it and see that there may be a problem and notify somebody, hey, I think we're trending in the wrong direction direction. Certainly worth understanding them. So in the etiology of AKI, it can be pre-renal, it can be post-renal, it can be intrinsic disease. And there are numerous potential causes of AKI, mainly related to a focal mismatch. This is a takeaway point. You want to remember this. A focal mismatch between oxygen and nutrient delivery and increased energy demands resulting in cellular stress. So you have to deliver the right amount of oxygen and the right nutrients to the kidney, or you will impair microcirculation certainly as part of it, and that increased energy demand and that mismatch will result in additional cellular stress. Intrinsic disease, you can have acute tubular uh, 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 necrosis, you can have glomerular nephritis, you can have uh, uh, interstitial nephritis, but the tubules of the glomerulus, the interstitium, and the intrarenal blood vessels themselves can be affected directly. Now, I will say you can have intrinsic disease unrelated to uh, external forces vis-a-vis either pre-renal or post-renal. But I will tell you that when you have a problem that is pre-renal or post-renal that you do not address, it will ultimately become intrinsic disease. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's important also to understand. Post-renal, basically a, a kidney stone, uh, anything blocking the renal tubule or urethra, uh, it results in an increase in renal tubule pressure and therefore a decrease in GFR. Pre-renal is the one that I really want to focus on, and it is related to hypoperfusion, decreasing GFR without damage to the renal parenchyma. So when you have a hypoperfusion state for a brief period of time, you, your kidneys will actually reduce the glomerular filtration rate, and there, which is an adaptive response, which therefore reduces their energy demand. So you on pump and you're in a low flow state, your GFR is going to drop precipitously, but in an adaptive sense, then mm -hmm. you're going to come back up. Mm -hmm. So short time hypoperfusion in and of itself is not going to cause a long-term problem. Again, depending on how long you are in that hyperperfusion state. You had mentioned in your previous lecture uh, a couple a month ago or so, I guess it's been, that the O2 consumption of the kidney does not change with temperature. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to understand that even though you may be somewhat hypothermic, you're really not you can't depend on that to protect the kidneys and say, I can go longer in this hypotensive state. You can do that with the brain mm -hmm. or hypoperfused state. You can do that with the brain. You can do that with a lot of other organs. You can do it with the gut, but you can't do that with the kidneys. It's kind of an interesting thing. So causes of, uh, of, of uh, uh, pre-renal uh, uh, AKI are renal ischemia, 
reperfusion inflammation, hemolysis, of course that's obstructive, oxidative stress, embolic events, and toxins, including diuretics, which are nephrotoxic. And this chart, I think, really describes a lot of interesting things. You've got preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative causes, risks and causes of uh, cardiac surgery, AKI. Uh, advanced age in the preoperative uh, uh, column, female gender, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, chronic kidney disease, so if you've already pre you're already predisposed, liver disease, peripheral vascular disease, previous stroke, smoking history, diabetes, and anemia. So, and of course, that, that's kind of tugs at my heartstrings because when we go on pump and hemodilute the patient and we are much more anemic than usual, it is its own, it is an independent risk factor of AKI. Intraoperative, more complex the surgery, CPB duration or time, need to return to CPB, more than likely because you had a shock state prior to actually doing that, or additional hemodilution perhaps. Low hematocrit during CPB, though they don't really identify what low means, and I know that's very uh, that's a, that's a, another debate that seems to always rage. Aortic cross clamp time, hypoperfusion, hypovolemia, venous congestion, emboli, cholesterol, and other, uh, inotrope exposure, and in the postoperative phase, vasopressors, I know you said Neo was horrible for the, mm -hmm. uh, for the kidneys and renal circulation, inotropes, diuretic exposure, blood transfusions, anemia, hypovolemia, venous congestion, cardiogenic shock. So all of these things are factors that cause uh, 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 cardiac surgery associated AKI. This is a very interesting graph. And this graph I really liked, and I wanted to share it with you all out of the uh, Journal of CV Surgery. If, uh, if you look at the lines, the green line is basically a normal GFR greater than 60. The red line is a somewhat compromised GFR between 30 and 60. And the blue line is a low GFR, compromised kidney function, with a GFR less than 30. So if you look at the green line, your cardiopulmonary bypass time almost doesn't affect your risk of developing AKI, that thing of being on bypass that long, until you get out to a little bit past two hours. Then you see a little bump. Now, if you have somewhat compromised GFR or kidney function, you can see that right at about 120 minutes, it really starts to make a change. And at 180 minutes, it's making a more significant change. By the time you get out to uh, three hours uh, or four hours, you're really uh, at a higher risk. But look at the blue line. If you're starting off with a GFR of less than 30, and you go on pump for almost any length of time, there's a very high likelihood you are not going to come out of there with your kidneys. This interesting schematic shows how the pump and the oxygen, the, the heart-lung machine interacts with the kidneys in a negative way. You have hemolysis generation, plasma-free hemoglobin, 
re results in a uh, an oxygen radical, free oxygen radical formation and lipid peroxidation that affects the kidneys directly. You have central nervous system stimulation, results in increased catecholamines with vasoconstriction, which results in ischemia and again, hypoperfusion of the kidneys, hypoperfusion in general, ischemia, same thing, atheroembolic events, same thing, inflammation and leukocyte recruitment and infiltration into the, uh, into the endothelial uh, lining of the kidneys, again, all resulting in AKI and injury. Now, this article that uh, recently has been published, albeit is about red cell transfusion and cardiopulmonary bypass, there seems to be, and I, I don't quite understand it, but there seems to be a push to, uh, and in this article, they infer that AKI may be uh, associated with ultrafiltration on bypass. And that's why I asked you to give that talk tomorrow. I didn't share this with you. I, sh I asked you to give that talk tomorrow uh, about that topic. So I'm really interested to see what you came up with independently and uh, how we can address this. So I wanted to just touch on this for a second because I don't really understand this concept that, that ultrafiltration uh, causes acute kidney injury irrespective of what the urine output is on bypass. But I wanted to show you this article because I think this article is extremely important and is from the Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2015. And, you you know, we talked earlier today, you mentioned to me that, you know, we do, human beings have evolved, right? You know, mammals evolve, everything evolves, right? Um, and insects even evolve, evolve, but they don't evolve in four years. So the physiology that we had four years ago is the same physiology that we have today, right? Agreed? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so just very quickly, and you can go back to that uh, slide, put that slide back up, but in this particular study, they did a bundle of interventions, mainly at limiting the renal impact of hemodilution during CPB, and stated that it is effective by limiting the hemodilutional impact of CPB is effective in reducing the acute kidney injury uh, rate. And so what they're saying, so that I sort of explain this very clearly, they're saying that the greater your hemodilution, the more uh, likely you are as an independent marker of acute kidney injury. That could be due to anemia. We can go to the full screen if you want. We could bring Keith in too. We can go, that could be due to anemia and just not delivering enough oxygen. There's that mismatch of nutrient need and, 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 and requirement. We can have, it can be a result of uh, non-continuous flow. It can be a result of a lot of things. But if you ultrafiltrate, and we'll talk more about it, I know tomorrow, and I don't mean to try to jump on top of the topic, but if you are trying to raise your, your DO2, you have a certain flow and you're trying to re raise the amount of oxygen you're able to deliver to tissue by removing plasma water and having a higher hematocrit, notwithstanding all the other issues that we can talk about again tomorrow as well. I hope you all join us tomorrow, which would be the, the third spacing of volume and all of those kinds of things. Um, I think this paper is really very telling in that limiting uh, hemodilution during CPB 
is very effective at reducing AKI rates. And I think that ultrafiltration on CPB is critically important. And frankly, and this may seem a little provocative, I'm not trying to, to I don't want to be, I'm not going to personally criticize anyone, but I do believe it is irresponsible of anyone to suggest that ultrafiltration uh, to manage uh, excess fluid volume and reduce anemia, which we know is harmful on cardiopulmonary bypass, to say that in some way that actually hurts the kidneys. I think it's irresponsible, and I think that we need to address it um, from a uh, from a professional, uh, evidence-based uh, perspective. Your thoughts? Well, as a traveler and someone who, uh, when I go into a place, and I, I, I love to ask questions about, um, uh, you know, I need to know how you how you do your perfusion so I can mimic that, and sometimes I say, um, okay, so you do this or you don't do that, and you know what's the reason for that so I know, and I hear this uh, really at an alarming rate. <clears throat> well, we don't use the hemoconcentrator. I remember the first time I heard this about five years ago. We had a, I was watching the case the first day I was there, and perfusion had a lot of volume in the in the reservoir, and I said, well, and the crit was pretty low, and I said, well. Um, you want me to grab a hemoconcentrate out of the cabinet? Oh no, uh, we we had a, this this surgeon. Uh, uh, we had a case that we used hemoconcentrator, and this, the, the the patient had AKI, and this surgeon thinks that it was due to the hemoconcentrator. And I thought to myself, this surgeon thinks that it was due to the hemoconcentrator. That's that's what you're basing this on. But since that time, about five years ago, I've heard this similar type of uh, scenario, where people are real hesitant. Some have even abandoned it altogether to use the hemoconcentrator. And I keep hearing it's almost a foregone conclusion in some people's mind that it's mm -hmm. causing AKI. Mm -hmm. And somehow, I have yet to see a single article or a single evidence that that's the case. And in 50 years of perfusion, we've researched this, and all of the indications are quite the opposite. I feel like we're going uh, backwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'd be open to anyone <clears throat> to, to learn anything new, but I cannot... I get my head around where this comes from. And every time I ask someone, in fact, I had this conversation the other day. I said uh, to someone who'd been out of school about four or five years, you know, and they said, well, you have to, you have to be very careful about using hemoconcentrator. You know, it, it could cause AKI. I said, well, that's interesting. I said, um, I can't seem to find anything on that. So they got on their phone and they couldn't find anything either. Mm -hmm. Couldn't find a single article. Mm -hmm. I've yet to be able to find one. It's interesting. Keith, you got any thoughts? Well, uh, it is interesting. Uh, I was at the AMSAC conference down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, there was a couple of, uh, well, I don't, know, I don't know what to say other than I think they're bad actors. Um, we're up there trying to promote this whole AKI uh, ultrafiltration, um, one led to the other kind of thing. And they even brought in a anesthesiologist from Duke. And I talked to the Duke people, and they said, the last time I did a case with that gentleman, I had 1,600 in my reservoir with a crit of 21, and I wanted to hemoconcentrate, and he said, add a unit of blood. And that kind of mentality just, I don't understand it at all. I mean, that is just so far gone. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it, it is. It's, 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 I, it makes no sense to me either. So I know we have one more talk, and I think we have a, dis we have a discussion period after John's last talk. Keith, is there any way we can ask you to, to hang around and be a part of that discussion? Because once John finishes his talk, we can have a free-for-all, I think, in here and have a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I'll definitely be around. You're going to take a break now, right? Yeah, we're going to take like a, a, a five-minute break, Tops. It's going to be quick, so we're not going to be gone long. And if y'all want to go refresh your, your beers, your wine, your tequila, your scotch, your potato juice, vodka, for those polls out there watching, uh, go right ahead, and we'll be back in five minutes. And welcome back, everybody, to PerfWeb 25, part one. And uh, we're going to go to our third lecture, what are the effects of ultrafiltration on cardiopulmonary bypass? John Ingram, BSCCP, no disclosures. Yeah, thank it's you. It's all yours. Thank you, Joe. Uh, just to follow up what we were just finishing up on our discussion, and as uh, I would say in the last five or six years when I've been traveling and hearing uh, the, the people claim that there's ills of the hemoconcentrator, I, I wanted to research it myself. I wanted to find out if there's something I'm missing or something I was taught wrong or something that's happened along the way that uh, would cause me to, um, so I went, went back a little bit and tried to, um, tried to learn you know, as much as I could about it. So this is kind of a, a, a summary of, of uh, some of the information that I found. And so we, we're calling this, uh, I call this lecture, what are the effects of ultrafiltration ultra on cardiopulmonary bypass? So, what are the benefits, first of all, and then are there negative effects of using the ultrafiltrator on, on bypass? And a question comes up now nowadays, does it reduce urine output? And I've heard that many times, you know, if, if you use him concentrate, oh, the urine, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna harden the kidney, you know, kidneys aren't gonna be able to Produce any urine. It doesn't make I sense. I was told the other day by a perfusionist that every time I've used the hemoconcentrator, the urine output came to a complete stop. I have done over 5,000 procedures of hemoconcentrator. I don't think I've ever seen that. Complete stop in urine the second you started using the hemoconcentrator? No, I've and, never I, seen I, that. Have you either. seen that? I've never no. seen that. Uh, does it dehydrate the patient? That's another thing that I've heard. Well, you know, you're going to dehydrate the patient. Uh, and I, this is one we hear all the time. So, does it cause acute kidney injury? So, I think this is a very pertinent topic nowadays because, you know, we've, we've known for decades that it has enormous benefits, and now we're hearing all these ills to the point where people are even not using it at all. Okay, so the comprehensive reference for this particular presentation that I'm, I'm using for everyone's knowledge is one of the Bibles of, of cardiopulmonary bypass, Gravely's uh, book that I did with Richard Davis, Mark Carews, and Joe Utley, very, very heavy, heavy hitters in the field of cardiac surgery and perfusion, and the second edition. Uh, in chapter seven, Dr. Roger Moore, director of anesthesia, and Dr. Glenn Lobb, director of cardiac surgery out of uh, New Jersey at the time, do a chapter specifically on hemofiltration, dialysis, blood salvage techniques during cardiopulmonary bypass. Now this chapter has over 256 references that these gentlemen use, in addition to their own expertise, in addition to the four authors of the book who also scrutinized what they did, and I took the very first part of the chapter, which only covered hemofiltration. This part of the chapter has 73 references that these gentlemen use as part of the structure of their chapter. So I'm going to actually refer to this the most, I think 90% of the lecture that I'm going to give has to do with this. I'm going to introduce some other articles as well, uh, and also give you these 73 references blow by blow as they go through them. So let's look at the historical perspective. Why did we ever have hemoconcentrator? How did it come to be? Why did we use it? In 1928, the concept emerged uh, of removing excess fluid from the intravascular space by filtrating the blood through some type of ultraporous membrane. The, the concept was, was derived, and they were trying to come up with ways to 
make that happen. In the 1950s and 60s, uh, clinical applications emerged as the filtering devices were developed for effective removal of edema in renal failure patients, right? In the 70s, it was first used in cardiac surgery and it was found to be very effective in reducing hemodilution and resulting in higher postoperative hematocrits. And by 79, ultrafiltration was extended to the use during cardiopulmonary bypass, but is initially limited to patients with compromised renal function. Mm -hmm. By the 1980s, uh, the use of ultrafiltration became general clinical practice. Um, patients in renal failure could now undergo open heart surgery safely because of the hemoconcentrator. It then expanded its use to concentrating blood in just overhydrated patients. Didn't have to be renal failure, could just be an overhydrated patient. Um, let's see if that clicker will work. Not work. Okay. It was then recognized, it was then became a recognized method for blood conservation through the preservation of platelets and coagulation factors. And you recall, Joe, in the 80s when, you know, cell saver really, really exploded. And some people were pointing out the fact that, you know, if you did run the blood through the hemoconcentrator, you're saving a lot of the things that are lost through the cell saver. We're going to talk about that briefly. Absolutely. In the true. 1990s, evidence emerged that there was a greatly reduced post post-bypass inflammatory responses and a reduced immunological activation when patients were used, uh, were used on bypass with the hemoconcentrator. Uh, evidence emerged that there was decreased complement activation and decreased inflammatory response. Um, this resulted in post-operative improvements in pulmonary, cardiac, and neurological function. Uh, ultrafiltration provided additional benefit actually they discovered, of moderating infections in post-operative period because it also removes circulating pyrogens. This was all in, in uh, discoveries in the 90s when people really began to use it. So what are the known benefits now of, of hemoconcentration? Well, first, it, pre it preserves hemostasis in the, in the sense that if you use the ultrafiltrator to concentrate and preserve, it'll, it'll preserve platelets and clotting factors. It provides for better post-operative hemostasis than techniques of cell washing. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, downplaying cell washing, but when you just compare it, everyone knows that it will preserve and, and keeps um, uh, your platelets and coagulation factors, where in cell, in cell washing, you, you're, you're discarding them. Yeah, and I and think, there's, there's and, pros and cons to both. And but, well, and I think that that's, you know, with your post pump blood circuit. No one would advocate, and I just want to make it clear, you know, for anybody that's confused, not, and I don't think it's because you're confused or confusing, but no one is advocating collecting blood for a cell, mm -hmm. from a cell saver in a, in a bring back heart or a non-cardiac patient and giving it back as whole blood run through a hemoconcentrator. We're talking about your post-pump leftover blood. Correct. And then everyone knows out there, I'm sure, that if you had 800 or so cc's in your pump, you can run it through the cell saver and you're going to get red cells and it's fine. But if you concentrated that through the hemoconcentrator, you'd end up with whole blood giving back. Yes, and, and concentrated a, whole blood. Yeah, and there's a preservation of the platelets and coagulation factors. Non-suction collected blood, right? Non-suction non collected. So, of course, if you look at the cell saver, it, it takes whole blood in and... It separates it into plasma platelets and white cells, and then red blood cells accumulate at the bottom because they're heavier. And then, of course, you're going to have plasma and platelets, which are discharged as loss, and then you have saved red blood cells that you end up with. And that's, that's fine. That's a good process. And the hemoconcentrator, you take in whole blood as well. It comes into the hemo, hemoconcentrator, and 
basically you have concentrated whole blood that comes out because all that you're removing is the plasma water. You're keeping the entire thing. Okay. So thereby it preserves plasma platelets and white blood cells and red blood cells. So in the uh, chapter by Gravely, these are all the reference articles that show that it's going to pr help preserve hemostasis compared to losing the platelets and plasma. So it also found that it reduced the immune response when you use hemofilter on bypass. Ultrafiltration has been found to immensely reduce serum concentrations of tissue necrosis factor, which is a very powerful active cytokine in the very acute phase of inflammation. TNF. Reduces complement. Now, complement fragment three is a whole host of, of uh, complements, but this plays a central role in the activation of the complement system. It also removes something called myoperoxidase. This is a cytotoxic mediator, which also produces hypochlorous acid, something people don't talk about too often. But here's a quote from the chapter. 24 hours after ultrafiltration, the pro-inflammatory cytokines, interleukins 1, 6, and 8, neutrophil levels, and oxidative stress enzyme levels are all decreased compared with patients who did not receive ultrafiltration. Here's all the articles that uh, they refer to as well as their own expertise. Uh, for, that, for that statement. What about end organ effects? Directly related to the immunological response, ultrafiltration provides significant improvements in end organ integrity. In particular, it was discovered that pulmonary, cardiac, renal, and neurologic end organ integrity was improved. But let's look at each one. In the pulmonary, the removal of complement, active, uh, complement three Activator 3 with ultrafiltration reduces postoperative pulmonary vascular resistance and reduces the need for intensive postoperative ventilatory support. It improved clinical outcomes with ultrafiltration with faster extubation times and improved postoperative alveolar oxygenation. Ultrafiltration leads to a decrease in pulmonary edema. Well, that makes sense. Uh, increased post bypass pulmonary compliance. If you have less pulmonary edema, Slug, you know, no sluggishness of your lung tissue, you have a better pulmonary compliance. They also found that you have a decrease in your mean airway pressure. Again, you have much more compliant lungs. But it also improved the total pulmonary status. In other words, when we started using hemoconcentrator, and what I showed in the history in the 80s and 90s, people would come out in the postoperative phase and they noticed this patient doesn't need to be on 60% of oxygen, they only need to be on 40%. They don't need to be on a, a 15 of PEEP, they only need to be on 5 of PEEP. You know, what's going on here? So the whole in pulmonary status was improved. And here are the, the reference articles, again, from this uh, section of the chapter. What about cardiac? They found that the use of ultrafiltration uh, was related to improved post-bypass hemodynamic function, including heart rate, increased systolic pressure, higher cardiac index, reduced pulmonary vascular resistance, improved diastolic compliance. And this is a quote from the chapter. The improved hemodynamics may be directly related to a decrease in the myocardial inflammatory response, leading to a decrease in myocardial edema and improved ventricular compliance. And here's all the reference articles that these gentlemen used for that particular aspect of the chapter. What about the renal benefits? Interleukin-1, tissue necrosis factor. These are very powerful inflammatories, by the way, very, very powerful ones. And interleukin-8 are pro-inflammatory agents that induce leukocyte adhesion to the renal arterial endothelial cells, thereby obstructing intravascular blood flow and initiating the inflammatory sequence. 
Studies have verified that early institution of continuous hemofiltration led to a significant restoration of renal function. Mm -hmm. Remember that diagram that I had? It showed that leukocyte infiltration, mm -hmm. okay, which is what this, what interleukin-1, TNF, and uh, interleukin-8 are, uh, are causing within that inflammatory process. Right. Um, here are the, uh, re some of the references they used in that chapter. What about the neurologic benefits that were, that were discovered? Let's see. Ultrafiltration leads to a decrease in cerebral edema, resulting in decreased inter intravascular water, increased cerebral oxygen delivery, improved cerebral metabolic oxygen consumption, removal of leukocyte-related mediators, mediators. Here's a quote from the chapter. Use of modified ultrafiltration after deep hypothermic circuitry rest, which they looked at specifically because when you want to look at neurologic, what's the worst case scenario? Our circuitry rest patients. Mm -hmm. So when they looked at that, they showed that use of modified ultrafiltration after circuitry rest has been ready to improve postoperative brain function. Here's all the uh, studies that they use from that. So let's talk about the negative effects, what people want to uh, focus on. Does it reduce urine output? The hemoconcentrator is simply aiding the kidney in its endeavor to reduce the excess volume. It has no direct ill effect on renal function. It may indirectly decrease urine output only insofar as reducing the total fluid volume, volume overload that the kidney must remove. This paper uh, is a more recent paper because the chapter that I was just talking about goes back uh, a few years. But here's a paper by Rick Kuntz and David Holt these gentlemen I've known for almost 30 years, I, I hold a lot, of, a lot of stock in what, in what they would say. Uh, and I think most people know, know both of them, as well as their partners. And they wrote a paper called Effects of Conventional Ultrafiltration on Renal Performance During Adult Cardiopulmonary Bypass Receivers Procedures. Came out in the Journal of Extraporal Technology 2006. The purpose of this study was to investigate the effects of aggressive conventional hemofiltration. They took off an average of 6,500 cc's. That's a they lot. Actually, done that. They actually purposely, during the procedure, added plasma light A or normosol, mm -hmm. and just for the benefit of being able to continually remove as much fluid as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, my point of that is that if, if you are going to have a negative effect from use of the hemoconcentrator, these gentlemen went after it because they had as much as 10 to 12. 6,500 was the mean. It was plus or minus 25, 3,500 up, upside or downside. Wow. Um, so they wanted to see if aggressive conventional hemofiltration on bypass, uh, what the effect was on bypass urine production, the fluid balance, and the renal performance in the 24 hours after bypass procedures in adults. So what they did, they did a prospective randomized study to determine the effects of conventional hemofiltration during bypass, and they monitored the urine dynamics intraoperatively and in a 24-hour post-office period. They took 49 patients in their conventional ultrafiltration group called CUF, and they took 47 patients that did not receive um, ultrafiltration. So here's, here's where the results. First of all, they looked at the ending bypass hematocrit, ending meaning as the patient was being wheeled out of the room, the end of the surgery. And the, in the ultrafiltration group, the hematocrit ranged Average was 30, hematocrit of 30, plus or minus 6. And the non-ultrafiltration group, hematocrit was 26, plus or minus 2. What about intraoperative blood product usage? And the ultrafiltration group, they averaged 200 cc's, plus or minus 300, meaning some people received none. Look at the non-ultrafiltration group. Double the blood product usage, almost 400. What about the ending fluid balance? In the ultrafiltration group, the average 
person was 744 cc's, and there's a big plus or minus there. But look at the non-cuff group. The average person, 3,006 fluid uh, plus to the plus side. No significances, no significant di differences in pre or post-operative creatinine values were observed. Well, here was our conclusion. Aggressive ultrafiltration can be safely used during bypass in the adult population to reduce fluid accumulation and elevate bypass somatic rates without affecting bypass or intraoperative urine production. Here's a paper by Dr. Wang and his associates in uh, 1996, Annals of Thoracic Surgery, and they looked at pediatric population, but they looked at efficacy of ultrafiltration and removing the inflammatory meters, a lot of what I was just talking about, in the pediatric population. 50 pediatric patients went on cardiac surgery. They analyzed the plasma levels of leukocyte, lastase, tumor necrosis factor again, alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-8. All these are some of the most powerful, most harmful ones. Here's their conclusion. Ultrafiltration was efficient in removing leukocyte, elastase, tumor necrosis, uh, necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, and interleukin-8. Here's a paper by Dr. Klar and, and Bowers. Uh, they looked at deceiving coefficients to determine if the hemoconcentrator of floor inflammatory mediators during bypass. So they just wanted to focus on the four. And their conclusion was mediators are efficaciously removed by the hemoconcentrator and may result in an attenuated inflammatory response. So now here's a paper by Dr. Tallman and, and, and Dumont. Richard Tallman from okay. Ohio State. Okay, in 2002. Uh, they looked at, again, the inflammatory mediated removal by zero Z-buff ultrafiltration during bypass. Okay, this was part of 2002, came out in perfusion. 30 adult patients, open heart procedure, randomized control study with either ultrafiltration or not. The Z-buff solution was plasmalite. <clears throat> by the way, that's an important topic we can bring up about the Z-buff solution. That's used. Yes, a very They use plasmalite, which makes sense because it's an uh, ionically balanced solution. Yes. The filtrate itself was analyzed for the presence of interleuc interleukins, one and six, tumor necrosis factor A, complement factors three and five. Here's our conclusion. This study demonstrates that ultrafiltration is a strategy that can be used during bypass in the adult to remove significant amounts of inflammatory mediators. <coughs> I hear this all the time. Well, you're going to dehydrate the patient. Chip dry. Desiccate them. Well, it's not really uh, complicated. If you have, unless you have concentrated the patient to a higher hematocrit, higher than your pre-bypass hematocrit, by definition, the patient's still hemodiluted. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many studies you want to put up there. The bottom line is if you have a pre-hematocrit immediately before going on bypass, whatever number you want to use, 35, and you go on pump and it's 25, and you hemoconcentrate up to 32, by definition, you're still hemodiluted. Well, yes and no, because I mean, you could, of course, now, have lost it, some it, cells it, in the yeah. labs. There's, there could, are some Unless you're having factors, he, Unless you're having hemolysis, yeah. 10-grade degree, which I don't, I, it could be a, a, a rare case. Now, if you have so much volume and you've added red cells and you've hemoconcentrated way beyond your baseline hematocrit, uh, I suppose, you know, you could look into that. I, I've done thousands of cases, and I don't 
know if I can think of one without adding red cells. Yeah. <clears throat> and by the way, if I use my hemoconcentrator, I didn't need to need to add red That's cells. That's right. <laughs> so um, uh, then people say, you know, I heard this when I was in my travels. They said, well. Can we open the phone lines and we don't, bring Keith we, in? We don't want to dehydrate your, your last slide. I think I got a couple more, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't for, did, forgive me. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, so I heard this, you know, I said, well, we don't want to dehydrate the patient. I'm like, well, what's your hematocrit? 28. What was your pre-bypass hematocrit? 35. I said, well, how are you dehydrating the patient when you're still diluted? Um, does it cause acute kidney injury? Well, I've yet to be able to discover, and anyone's been able to present to me, any prospective double-blind multicenter study which had demonstrated ultrafiltration, ultrafiltration contributes to acute kidney injury. In fact, we have almost 40 or 50 years of evidence that shows that the opposite is true. There's been decades of numerous studies that have verified that early institution of, ultra, of hemofiltration leads to a significant restoration of renal function. It was stated that in, in Gravely's book back in 2000. The improvements to the renal function are considered to be a result of removing the toxic metabolites and the inflammatory mediators. So <clears throat> here's my conclusion. Ultrafiltration is a valuable method for removing excess plasma water and a myriad of pro-inflammatory agents during bypass. And numerous studies indicate that it leads to an improvement in the general post-operative state of the patient. The primary consideration arguing against the use of ultrafiltration would be the extra cost, which I've heard, and providing this intervention adds blood exposure to an additional artificial surface area. The use of ultrafiltration is safe, and there are no known contraindications for its use. Concerns associated with use are heavily outweighed by its proven value in reducing intravascular volume, preserving post-operative hemostasis, and improving post operative and organ function. And here are the 73 reference articles from Gravely's book that just focused only on the hemostasis section. The homeostasis. Homeostasis and hemostasis. The whole hemofiltration section. I'm sorry. Okay. The whole ultrafiltration section. Mm, very good. Okay. Let's bring everybody in. You brought up some, I mean, I wanted to stop you about 50 times <coughs> because there's so much information there <coughs> and so much of it uh, was valuable. You know, there's this this idea, you know, first of all, CVVH, you know, it, how can we say that a therapy, you know, and there's several big companies, Baxter Gambro, Next Stage, B. Braun, you name it, have devices specifically designed to treat the patient in the ICU with continuous ultrafiltration, continuous veno-veno hemofiltration, because you're replacing the volume with what you want the plasma water look at, look like. And you can also remove volume from the patient when they're fluid overloaded. Again, going back to my earlier statement, no one is advocating taking a patient who has heat stroke and ultrafiltrating that patient. We're talking about patients who are almost, I, I don't know of a time I have ever seen a patient where I'm getting ready to go on bypass, unless it was a trauma, but a routine coronary or routine valve that was not hypervolemic just from anesthesia. They may have come in the hospital dry, but they're not dry right now. Um, we've seen big drops in hematocrit, all of the indicators that we have to, to recognize that, plus the pump run, plus the cardioplegia. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, but I don't know how you can take a, a, a system that is used thousands of times a day 
the hemoconcentrator in the ICU and say when you remove it from the ICU and you put it in to treat patients' kidneys, to rest their kidneys, to make their kidneys better, when you take it to the operating room and hook it to the heart-lung machine, it suddenly becomes the kidney killer. Mm. I have a real problem figuring this out. Keith? I was just thinking John's talk. Was that not Yeah, John. Fantastic job summarizing all the articles out there. There isn't anything that shows that it causes AKI, especially Kuntz's paper. Kuntz's paper was so prolific. It's the only prospective randomized paper that shows um, that it has no difference in urine output on bypass. Um, of course, you went over the whole thing about uh, the cytokines and anaphylotoxins, which, again, are very, very much important. C3A, C5A, IL-6, IL-8, TNF-alpha, uh, bradykinins, uh, myocardial depressant factors. I mean, there's lots of papers out there that show that, especially in kids, but Talma did one too. And then there's a couple out of Europe that say the, uh, Europe that say the exact same thing. So as far as I'm concerned, until they can come up with these bad actors can come up with concrete evidence, and we're talking about prospective randomized trials, uh, not retrospective multivariate, uh, multivariable linear, linear regression papers or any of those things where they have to use hocus pocus to get to their point. Fuzzy math. The yeah, the whole thing is there's, as you said, we have 40 years of evidence that shows that it's positive. And, you know, I think that there's, uh, again, a certain group, a small group, whatever, that are trying to stare the perfusion field in a certain direction and cause uh, doubt or, or you know, controversy. Uh, but again, it's all fake news, right? The fake news. Well, you know, so, uh, the problem that I have with that, and I think that uh, I, I, I appreciate you know, your passion for this, I have a similar passion, and of course, and I, and I, listen, I, I, I respect very much you and, and your thoughts, and I, I, I do feel also, like you do, that these are, you know, we call them bad actors or whatever we want to call them, but for me, Keith, it's really coming down to, you know, I guess I view it more as uh, being irresponsible. This is, this is being irresponsible <clears throat> to the patient's that we are entrusted to care for. There's that's that's really for me where the bottom line to this is. You know, to 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 advocate that something that has been demonstrated for all these years that has so much benefit in so many different mm -hmm. aspects when used properly. Again, everything we're discussing here is under the is predicated on appropriate use, not on just use for the sake of use, like anything else, but to advocate that somehow that is causing harm based upon really no credible evidence is irresponsible. And it's very concerning to me that, that, that a platform actually exists for that Irresponsible, uh, irresponsibility to be disseminated. So, you know, it isn't, and, and, and I'm not trying to, I don't want to pick on anybody, you know, I don't want to really, I don't want to cause my own controversy, but, you know, these people wrote this article and these people had a platform in which to present that information and they, or to, to publish that information. And that stuff is supposed to be edited. Somebody is supposed to review that for its integrity. And uh, I don't know how it got through. And that concerns well, me equally. 
Well, I could interject something. Just in general, uh, you can probably Google this. I think the number, and I could be wrong, it's very high. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 60, 70, even maybe more percent of all medical research cannot be duplicated by someone else. Can't be duplicated by someone else. You, you, you do a study, and for whatever reason, someone else does it, and they don't find exactly that. Mm -hmm. But when you do find that many, many, many people have done a similar study, and they find the same thing, it removes all these inflammatory mediators. It improves organ function. Now you're talking about something that is overwhelmingly, I mean, obvious. I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm almost surprised we've been talking about this. Me too. It's kind of like saying, <laughs> you know, kind of like too. saying, should, should we turn the oxygen on on the oxygen? Or you have just, four I mean, minutes. You have four minutes. Yeah, yeah, four minutes. So I mean, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, um, when you look at the history of what I showed you and how it evolved, <clears throat> when they first started in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we were using hemoconstrate a lot for a couple of reasons. Number one, our prime volumes were large. The circuits were larger. And we used a lot of cardioplegia, because most of it was two, three liters of straight crystalloid. So you used a lot of hemoconstrate. And people were saying, this is great in the beginning, because we can now use patients that don't have good renal function, can have cardiac surgery. People that are fluid overloaded, why don't we apply it to them? That's all they were really doing. And we can come off bypass without higher hematocrits and not give people blood. Nobody was looking to see that thought it was going to improve organ function. Mm -hmm. This came up on its own, mm -hmm. that people didn't have to use the vent nearly as much, mm -hmm. that cardiac function was better, didn't need as many balloon pumps, there wasn't myocardial edema. People were waking up sooner because mm -hmm. neurological benefits were there. Mm -hmm. People didn't have as much uh, serum creatinine uh, spike, spike or better urine output. Nobody was looking for this. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you're doing an experiment... Almost accidentally found. Well, uh, my point is if you're doing an experiment and you're doing something and you're saying, okay, we're going to do this and we're maybe going to see... Uh, less, uh, less weight, the patient will weigh less because they're gonna have less food on board. We, we're pretty sure that's gonna happen. And maybe they're gonna have higher hematocrits. We're looking for this. And all of a sudden you start seeing these other benefits you weren't even looking for. Nine times out of 10, they must've been pretty profound because they came at you. You weren't mm -hmm. looking for them, mm -hmm. right? And that's what happened with all this organ benefit, all this end organ improvement. They, weren't, they didn't know that was gonna happen. Then they started asking the question, well, why is this happening? Every time we use hemoconcentrator, Patients are extubated faster. They wake up. All these things, and they started studying. Well, what what is this thing removing? The cardiac And they found out that it's removing. I mean, I just listed a handful. It, like Keith was saying, there's far more things you could you could mm -hmm. talk about that it's removing. And everybody who's looked at that has found that it removes all mm -hmm. of these inflammatory meters. Mm -hmm. And even pyrogens, even the infection load on patients was reduced. Something that people don't even discuss. So, you know. Um, on the other hand, there's never been a paper that's come out and said, well, wait a second, it does all these benefits, but it has this harm over here. I've never seen one. In I fact, everything either. you read says there's no contraindications to using a concentrator. Mm -hmm. I mean, other than you could say you're increasing the surface area or the cost. Mm -hmm. um, the number, there's two huge negatives to the cardiopulmonary bypass. There's many, many. But number one and number two are the disruption of the coagulation system and the serious response. The hemoconcentrator comes along as the only device that takes a big bite out of the Sears response. The, the only one that takes a big bite out of it, that pushes us, this huge negative to bypass, pushes us a little bit in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It has at least a dozen benefits, and talk about fluid overload and myomaticrate, but you just know, the Sears response alone well, you know, is, is, is significant. I agree, and you know, and, and that's true, and we, we oh wait. 
what's happening. Huh? I can't hear you. Get him. Keith? Oh, I don't see I'm you. still. Yeah, I'm still here. There. You're pointing and there's nobody there. There's nobody there. Oh, there he's he is. There there. He wasn't there. They're pointing at me and the, you know, the engineers are pointing at something and all I see is myself and they're pointing at me. It's like, what's wrong with me? All right, Keith, you're here. They told me to stop talking, let you talk. Okay, well, you guys are burning it up. There's no doubt about it. And as I said, Kuntz's paper is the definitive paper. We need to get him involved. Um, the other thing that I think a lot of people, uh, or at least a lot of my customers, John, you said there were two things, right? Cirrus and uh, coagulation. But the hemobag type devices where you save blood at the end, that affects number one, that coagulation you know, discrepancy. You get your clotting factors back and you, you do much better. The other thing that I hear a lot, I mean a lot from a lot of customers globally, is that when they get back to the unit, Usually there's no nurse to be found standing at the bed because the patient's so stable. When the surgeon comes back from talking to the family, they're not sitting around trying to balance the, the IVs and uh, the pressors and this and that and the other thing. Patient's stable. When they get to the ICU, it's homeostasis. There's no more fluid shifts faster back to baseline than there is with people that have gotten a lot of fluids or are mismanaged with. Uh, and the other thing that you talked about briefly, but I just have to really beat it, is Anytime someone gets a unit of blood, it increases their uh, chances for AKI. Right. I mean, there's lots of papers out there that Huge. show that. Huge. So right. if you've got a patient who's a borderline and you don't want to use a hemoconcentrator, but you're going to give him a unit of blood anyways, well, you just increases his chances of AKI. And that was not related to ultrafiltration. And not just AKI, but a whole host of other unwanted problems. Correct. So it's it's blood is you know blood is 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 an unfortunate dichotomy. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. There's sometimes you absolutely need it. But I do think it is our responsibility to limit its use when possible. I mean, it, I think I, again, I, I I'm baffled that someone would give have mm -hmm. three liters in their oxygenator, a hematocrit of nineteen. And they would give two units of PEC cells. Mm -hmm. Why in the heck would you do that? Now, how much volume do you have in your reservoir? <laughs> yeah, it just—I just can't. I cannot. I cannot understand it. But we haven't even touched on, and I'm going to do that a little bit more tomorrow. We haven't even touched on the benefit of reducing third spacing, mm -hmm. which reduces interstitial edema, which which in turn reduces the microcirculation. So we haven't talked about, we didn't even discuss those benefits in this talk. It's such a complex uh, issue. And then the, the other thing though, I do wanna mention is, we all need to learn a little more about these bicarb-based solutions. Because when you do, even using Normasol and Plasmalite, when you do high volume CVVH or continuous ultrafiltration with replacement fluid, however you want to zero balance, ultra Z buff, whatever you want to call it. There's so many, it's alphabet soup really. It's a, mm -hmm. You know, but what I'm talking about is those high volumes where you're removing 10 liters, but you're giving back eight of those liters in a continuous fashion so that you're removing some mm. fluid that you're hypervolemic with, but mm. you're also removing all of those evil humors, as we'll call them, mm. the cytokines, interleukins, and so forth, uh, that the bicarb-based solutions that exist and readily available, they're commercially available, make a lot of sense. 
they make a lot of sense and and i think we need to use uh, we need to really explore those as a priming volume more so than only using the acetate based uh, solutions which dilute the bicarbon and can become somewhat problematic i believe yeah, I think you need to touch more on the, certainly the microcirculation. And, of course, the big hot, hot topic nowadays is the glycocalyx and protecting the glycocalyx. And what protects it? Albumin. Albumin. Well, that's, right. you're giving that talk in June right here. You're giving that talk in June on albumin and uh, its, its benefits and how we, you know, we don't treat hypoalbuminemia and how devastating that particular uh, problem is. We have five well, you minutes. know what's okay. Say when uh, mm -hmm. just briefly, um, people, you know, they're like, "Oh, I give a couple of units, uh, or I give a couple of bottles of albumin uh, on the case, and then at the end of the case, they just send like a liter or two over to the cell washer, and they give back just." Oh my uh, God! I know. And, and I was like, "Well, you, 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 you had it, and then you threw it away." Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, but why don't we treat, why don't we treat the COP anymore? I mean, that's just a, yet another discussion. Why do we not measure albumin? They measure it when the patient's in the ICU for a reason, even though I've seen some people not treat it with, uh, with, um, with, uh, with, with an albumin level of 1.2. I've seen, I've seen albumin levels of 1.2 and the patient looked like, didn't look human. Well, 3.2, anything less than that is considered Danger. Or but that's an, in, so. that anything under, actually an albumin under two is an independent indicator of mortality, an, indicate, an independent predictor of mortality under two. And there are pl plenty of papers that show that. Yes. So we didn't even discuss that. So you're maintaining not only your hemoglobin, you're maintaining not only your perfusion by decreasing this third spacing, you're maintaining your albumin levels, your proteins you're clotting but when you come off bypass you have pro clotting proteins to actually help to create hemostasis to get out of the operating room keith your hemo, hemo bag does the same thing if you come off bypass and you have a lot of volume you know why would you put that to the cell saver and just give back red blood cells and throw away all of those essential proteins doesn't make sense to me and then give ffp i work ah. at a place where active cardiac surgery program doesn't use a cell saver. Mm -hmm. Just don't use it. Um, what little suction you have went to the wall and all the blood volume and the pump went back to the patient. But you have to have somebody and, who truly respects you know, how important it is to have good surgical hemostasis. Mm -hmm. They can't be sloppy surgeons and they can't just, you know, let the, the, the chest wall from the mammary dissection bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed and have two late leaders in the left chest at the end of the case. They I have mean, to be respectful of I, that. I don't, I don't advocate that because you need to be able to have the cell saver and you need to save whatever you can save. You can mm -hmm. have very little blood loss. But I know some people don't surgery. use the pump sucker. And, uh, they never yeah, use I, it. I, I worked, I worked, I worked with, and during the case, the, all, the, all the suction went to the cell saver. So, I mean, it's very, very valuable tool. The cell saver is a very mm -hmm. valuable tool. It is, agreed. Um, and I don't really look at it as a competitor, except with the blood pump volume at the end. I mean, if, you, if you're so inclined to really concentrate it and give it back as whole blood, I think there's significant benefits to all, all the same things you guys have talked about. I think you there know? is too. I think every tool that we use currently, whether it be the cell saver, right. the hemoconcentrator, the heart-lung machine, uh, cardioplegia, uh, Del Nido, whatever it is, everything we do 
depends on its prudent and mm -hmm. proper use. You only give as much as you actually need. You only do as much as you absolutely must. You know, you, you try to find that line. Now, it's very hard to be perfect, nobody is. But, you know, you don't just willy-nilly do something to excess every time or you say, I do this on every patient mm -hmm. regardless, you know, without a justification for it. You've, you've, you just have to be able to say that I've thought this through and I think that this case, you can't treat today's case like yesterday's case or tomorrow's case. You have to treat each case as its own case and consider the patient and what's in their best interest at the time, given the knowledge that uh, that you have um, and uh, and what evidence exists. That's my bottom line. I would say something interesting too. There is a huge, once they came out with the Aiken and the things that you talked about, the um, criteria was Rifle. more defined yes. for acute kidney injury. They actually find that when people look at it now with those criteria, the, the, the uh, post, Regular post-bypass AKI is actually quite a bit higher than 20%. It's more mm -hmm. like 30 to 40%. Some people say it's even higher than that. Whatever the number is, let's just say it's the 20 or 30% that, that of regular bypass patients have a bump in their serum creatinine. Mm -hmm. I want people to understand something. The vast majority of those people didn't have a hemoconcentrator. So in other words, you have this huge percentage of people experiencing AKI. 80-90% mm -hmm. of those probably didn't have hemoconcentrate in their case. Mm -hmm. So what's your explanation for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have You one. see what I'm saying? I mean, that's if, you're, if you're saying hemoconcentrate is causing AKI, you've got the vast majority of people coming out of bypass with AKI, they didn't have hemoconcentrate in their yeah, case. That's a very good point. <laughs> You know, I'll tell you something else about critically ill patients, post-op cardiac surgery patients, and uh, and using creatinine. Not only is it a very slow marker, it's delayed, in very other delayed, words, yeah. but you, if, when you have a patient that does have AKI and their creatinine is actually going up, but you're treating them with fluid resuscitation, you dilute it back down, mm -hmm, right. and you don't, so not only is it delayed, but it gets massed. Falsely lowered, yeah. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a whole lot mm -hmm. to this, right. besides, as you said, Keith, a, uh, a voodoo regression, linear regression of the hypotenuse of some triangle <laughs> somewhere in the middle of Bermuda. Yeah. Listen, you guys are doing a great job. Uh, tomorrow, it looks like you're starting off pretty early, 9.45 or 10 o'clock? Yes, uh, that is correct. Okay, so I'd like to try and call, you know, call in again tomorrow. Love especially to I want to hear, hear that talk uh, about the fluid overload is deadly. I mean, obviously, it, it all boils down to, I'm going to be honest with you, call it osmotic pressure, microvascular, you know, the vascular tone, but it's all microvascular fluid movement. And that's uh, it's going to be interesting to list to see what slides you got to. You're going to be really proud of me, okay? You're going to be proud of me tomorrow because I'm going to talk about the mean systemic fluid vo the uh, fluid volume pressure, so the uh, the PMSF. So I think okay. you're going to be very proud of me when you talk about that microcirculatory flow that you're talking about and how all of that interacts. So I've, I've looked into that, and I think you're going to find some interesting information. Well, thank you for including me tonight with your uh, discussions. Thank you, too, sir, very much. It's good talking to you. Be safe. Thanks, John. Bye. Thanks, Keith. And now everybody else, I think we have... Uh,
We have beat, we have beaten this up. Probably. I yeah. think it's. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm ready to go get some grub. I think we're we're going to end a little bit early, but I think that's okay. True. I think that we took a very short break, so that's good. Our total time, I think, is good. To our stu- to our uh, studio audience, we have a we have a studio audience now. Believe it or not, some of you out there in web world may want to come join our studio. Look, we got clappers. <laughs> we got clappers. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty funny. Um, and uh, and uh, anyway, so I think we're going to start tomorrow morning, nine forty-five, with opening remarks. We're going to continue this discussion. Anybody that may be out there that wants to participate in our in our uh, webinars that may have some good uh, presentations or data or want to be involved, please reach out to me. It's very easy to find me. If you're having any problem finding me, just use the call-in number that you saw displayed and somebody eventually will get back to you. Uh, but would love to find more people interested in participating in PerfWeb. I think that's the goal. Uh, would like to do, create, an, create a family of people, create a community, if you will. Um, and also for those participants, if you want to come be a part of our studio audience, um, come on, it's fun. After the thing is over, we always go have some fun and some liquid libations and some food and tomorrow's a crawfish boil and it's just a whole lot of fun. But uh, we're trying to make the educational process, um, you know, uh, uh, as difficult as it is, is to, to learn all of this stuff and to focus after you've worked all day. We're trying to make it informative uh important you know something that's germane to your practice uh something that you want to be a part of and participate in but also be a little bit of fun yeah absolutely and i think we're a con john i can't thank you enough for being here i'll see you in the morning but uh can't thank you enough with that said i'm going to bid all of you adieu uh wish you good night uh hope you have a nice dinner and we'll see you back tomorrow morning if you signed up for the bundle and you're with part two okay good night